Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Perky of Us podcast. This is Rabbi Shlomo Kohn, where we live with the ethics of the Torah. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me at Rabbi Shlomo Kohn with a K at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Tonight, we will be starting from the beginning of Perkyevos, the first Mishnah with a little introduction. And we will, God willing, be making our way through again after completing Perkyevos already one time. This will be our second cycle going through. And we, God willing, will get some more clarity and guidance on how to be a better person, a better Jew, how to have a deeper connection with God and to make the world a better place. So tonight's podcast is dedicated in memory of my grandfather, Rabbi Elio Shmuel Ben Shlomaleib, Mez Neshama Havan Aliyah, whose yard site is tonight. For this week, we begin with Perak Aleph, Mishnah Aleph, chapter one, Mishnah one. Now, before I begin with the first Mishnah of Perkiavos, there's a few questions which just have to be raised even before we start. Number one is, what is Perkiavos? Number two is, why does it have a name, Perkiavos? Ethics of the fathers sounds interesting, and and number three is um, just um, a, that's it really number just two two thoughts. So the we all know that the Torah is not just a history book, right? Torah is you know as opposed to what many people say, and what I've heard from people is that our heritage is the Torah is is our source is our guidebook for life is our instruction manual how to be a better person how to have a connection to hashem there's also history there as well which are our heritage our people our forefathers and there's mitzvot in the torah commandments that we have from hashem to do that give us the ability to make the most of our lives so we know that we have this instruction manual now there's different parts of life there's, right we have there's our there's there's physical part of our lives, emotional, spiritual, and even in our observance of mitzvos, there's different types of mitzvos as well. We have mitzvos that are kept um, that are, in order for a functioning society to exist, we need to have certain commandments, right? Do not kill, do not steal. steal. We have other mitzvos which are ritualistic, um, which really commemorate certain events. And help us remember them, right? We eat matzah to commemorate going out of Egypt. We blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah to commemorate the uh, binding of Isaac, right? We do certain things. And then there's other mitzvahs as well, which are chukim. They're called divine statutes. Now, this is like the, this is breaking down the general commandments that we have in the Torah. But in the Torah as well, we have instructions for being a better person. And, you know, the biggest genre of books, if you look online, I think the most books are, that are sold, which category sells the most, is self-help. And I'm going to get into it in the mission a little bit, but the idea is Perkyavos is a work of the Mishnah, which, which, is, um, which is focused on character development, focused on connection to God, focused on maximizing your potential focused on how to make the world a better place. 
And just to give a little background, the Mishnah, right? There's the written Torah and the oral Torah. The written Torah is the Torah scroll, right? It says in there, oh, it says, Barashas Baralakim Hashemayim Vasar. It starts with the, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. It starts with the book of Genesis, goes all the way through to the, the five books of Moses, right? Through Deuteronomy. And that is the written Torah. Now, besides for having a written Torah, we have the oral Torah as well. Now, the oral Torah is really the, I guess, the, the guide, how to, you know, to, we, we've touched upon this in, in previous episodes, but the oral Torah is the, I guess, sort of the, the explanation for certain parts of the written Torah. Because if we wouldn't have a oral Torah to go along with the written Torah, the many parts of what is written in the Torah would be totally incomprehensible. For example, the Torah says we should wear to fill in, right? But nowhere in the Torah does it describe for us how to fill in look, right? We know that the Torah tells us to take a special type of tree to shake it on, suk- on sukkis, right? We take a special type of fruit. But we nowhere in the Torah does it say you take a, a, a palm, palm frond and a, and a, a, a hadasim and a ravos, right? Different myrtle and, and a, um, and a uh, esro, which is a citron, right? The, the four species doesn't say exactly which one should we take. It doesn't spell it out exactly. And there's many more examples in the Torah that of things that we do as Jews, which we take as, as, as granted, take for granted. We just do, we assume is part of our religion, but it's not written in the Torah. So the question is, where do they come from? So the answer to that is that along with the written Torah was the oral Torah, which was given over to Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu, to Moses. And every generation, it would be passed down and passed over from teacher to student, father to son, from generation to generation. And we're going to see in the Mishnah, the Mishnah begins with a, a, I guess, a level of the, the levels of transmission, the chain of transmission from student to teacher. And that's how the beginning uh, chapters of the Mishnah is going to be related. We're going to go from teacher to student, teacher to student, to show that chain of transmission, which has been unbroken from the giving of the Torah, which happened, you know, over 2000 years ago till today. Meaning to say is that I can trace and every, and, and, and in essence, you, can trace your um, teaching, the teachings that we're talking. What we talked talk about these ideas and lessons from Avos, what we talk about, it can be traced back all the way from student to teacher, all the way to Sinai. And we'll go into that a little bit later. But what I want to bring out right now is this idea of the Mishnah. So what is the Mishnah? So we said there is a concept of a written Torah and an oral Torah. And they went together. Right, we have to, in order to fully understand the written Torah, you have to have the oral Torah, and the reason why it is set up like that we have discussed. But the idea is, is that since our job is not just to have a, a Torah scroll on the shelf and just look at it every you know every few months, every once a year, our job is to toil in Torah to because that is our way of getting a connection to Hashem, to having to be to becoming a better person is by the actual study of Torah and applying its ideals to ourselves, that's how we gain that connection and gain that, those benefits. So, the, so in order to ensure that we're constantly studying, 
the Hashem in his in his, in in his um, in his kindness and in in his in his abundant knowledge, you know, he knew what was best for us, and therefore he set it up in a way where we where we would have to constantly study in order to maintain it to keep the oral tradition. Now that was done for for a certain amount of time, but as the generations progressed and I guess degressed, they, the the generations got weaker. So the rabbis were afraid that the oral Torah would be lost forever because of you know different upheavals in time, the you know exodus, the exile from from Israel. There were different exiles, the, the destruction of the temple. The Jews were being sent all over the place. So in order to ensure that the oral Torah be preserved for eternity, the rabbis instituted as a one-time, I guess, uh, a ruling that the Rabbeinu HaKadosh instituted that certain parts of the oral Torah should be transcribed, and that is what has become known as the Mishnah. The Mishnah is really, it's a, it is, you know, it's broken up into different sections, you have different sections deal with different topics. You have the, the section of damages, you have the, which it deals with. There's certain you know areas in Jewish law which deal with the you know interpersonal relationships, monetary monetary law. You know if a person damages somebody else, that is a whole section of tractates. You have the section called moe, which deals with different holidays, um, and there's six sections of the Mishnah, which deal which broke which was how the oral Torah was broken down and transcribed. Now, the thing is, if you look at a Mishnah, a Mishnah could be very hard to decipher, right? Because when the when Rabbeinu HaKadosh, right, when he wrote down the Mishnah, he only wrote down the minimum that was necessary in order to preserve it for that time. Meaning the generations were getting a little bit weaker, but he didn't write everything down, the whole oral Torah. He put like the code words in. Meaning, you know, like the to make a little separation, the cliff notes, you know, cliff notes is it's like a shortened version of the story. And you and, you know, you fill in the rest of the blanks. So to make a little bit of a separation, obviously, God forbid, the Mishnah is not cliff notes. But the point is, Rabbeinu HaKadosh, in, in his great wisdom, he foresaw what was happening. And therefore, for his time, he realized that, OK, I, I just need to write down the minimum. And therefore, people will still be able they'll still have to toil to understand the Mishnah. They still have to you know, have that give and take between teacher and student, right? In order to fully understand the Mishnah, you're going to need a teacher to teach it to you. You're going to need your father to teach it to you. So it was in its basic form, the oral Torah was transcribed. Now, at a later point, when generations also continued to get weaker, the Ravina and Ravashi, which were certain great sages of that, of, of, of that time period, they felt it necessary to expound upon the Mishnah meaning they, they were afraid that even with the Mishnah written down in its minimum form, that the oral Torah would be lost. So therefore, they decided to elaborate on the Mishnah, to expand it, and that's what has become known as the Talmud. The Talmud is based off of the, the Mishnah, and for one little Mishnah, you can have pages and pages of Talmud, which are coming to explain those few lines of Mishnah, because encapsulated in a small Mishnah can be many, many discussions and many, many arguments and many, many parts of the oral Torah. And at a certain point, the, the Talmud was sealed and no more additions you know, were transcribed over. Not, I shouldn't say additions, but there was nothing else was added to it. 
after a certain point. So now just we have that clear. So now we know what a Mishnah is. So the Mishnah, Pirkei Avos, is one of the Mishnayos, which was transcribed, and it is included in the section of damages, which is actually interesting because the, I, I, you know, the, the Talmud relates that if a person wants to become a pious person, he should involve himself in the study of damages and the study of, of uh, according to one opinion, and the study of Avos, which is also in the same section of the Mishnah. And the commentaries explain that in order for someone to become, I guess, to excel in character development and excel in morals, the person has to be careful with the money of others and also additionally with the feelings of others and how to deal with people properly as well. So it really brings us to the next question, which is why, if if I would have a, a book that I wanted to write, a Mishnah that I'm teaching interpersonal relationships between people and a, a book which is going to give us guidance on on how to have the best relationships with God relationship with God. What is what is the meaning of Pirke Avos, ethics of the fathers? Right? How does the fathers come into this? Who's the father we're talking about? So the, the commentaries explain there's different answers that that talk about this question. One of the answers I saw, which I thought was very nice, was that is that we know that parents are responsible for the physical, emotional, and moral guidance for people, for their children. And the sages equate a teacher to a parent, right? And, and we know all the more so the originally teachers, a, a child's biggest teacher, I mean, even today, right? How much do children gain from us as parents? Tremendously. So in earlier times, primarily, the main teacher of a child was their father, right? Their mother also, right? The parents. So we know that the parents are the ones who have, the, have a, this responsibility at the end of the day to, to guide a child on the correct path, morally, uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And the sages equate a teacher to a child because the Talmud relates that a, that a, a person who teaches someone else's child Torah, it's as if he, he begot him. It's as if he gave birth to him in a sense because although a person's physical mother and father were the ones who gave birth to him physically, the, the person, this teacher who teaches this child Torah he's giving birth to him spiritually because he's giving him a spiritual life, right? The parents are giving him a physical life that he's able to, to become a physical being and exist in this world. But the teacher is enabling this child to, to, to have a spiritual life, right? By teaching him what is correct, what should he do? What should he not do, right? How to have a connection with God, right? We, we know that we believe in afterlife and afterlife is eternal. It's forever. In Judaism, right, a person, person lives, God willing, 100 years, 120 years, that's the physical life. But after that, there's a spiritual life, and which starts obviously in this world, but continues even after we pass on. And we know that that is, and that's the reason that this Mishnah 
is referred to ethics of the fathers because the sages are given that importance. They're given that credence that they're given the level of a father. And since the sages are the father of the nation, so therefore it's appropriate for the Mishnah that gives us that guidance of morality, of emotional guidance, physical guidance, moral guidance, should be referred to as Pirke Avos, ethics of the fathers, because the sages of Israel are considered like the fathers of the, Jew, of the Jewish people. Another understanding of, of the meaning of Pirke Avos is that Avos is also could also be referred to as a category and or a major category to be more specific. And we know that when it comes to the laws of Shabbos, of what a person can and cannot do on Shabbos, it's broken down into 39 Avos, which literally means categories. And all the laws of Shabbos, of what a person could do on Shabbos or cannot do on Shabbos, more specifically, what they cannot do, the forbidden categories of what they cannot do on Shabbos are derived from these 39 categories. So it's appropriate that the Mishnah, this Mishnayas that gives us the guidance of pretty much all, covers all human interaction with human to human, right? Person to person, um, person to God, right? A relationship to God is correctly called Perke Avos, the ethics, you know, of the fathers, which could also mean the categories, the main categories. And it's from these, I guess, Mishnayos that we're going to learn, these avos, these major categories that we come to understand all the situations that can come out in life. Because we know that not every, you know, I'm sure anyone could attest when, when, you, when you go to college or you take a training course and anything, they never, you know, as much as you can get prepared for any given situation, you cannot be fully prepared for every scenario that will come at you. There's just, it's impossible. Every situation is different. Every person is different. The time is different. The weather could be different. So it's impossible to, to train for every possible given scenario and situation. But what you could do is you could get, you could know what to do broadly in, in about the main situations that could come up. You could know how to handle the, the, you know, most scenarios that could come in from your experience and from your training in the main categories, are you able to handle any other type of scenario that could come up as well? And that's why it is called Perkiavos. Mishnah begins. Moshe Kibo Torah Misinai. Moshe, Moses received the Torah from Sinai, which is referring to Hashem himself who revealed himself on Mount Sinai. When it, that's what it means when it's referring to Sinai. And, and Moshe conveyed it, the Torah, to Yeshua. The Yeshua was a Canaan. And Joshua, he conveyed it to the elders. Who's a Canaan, And the elders transmitted it to, or conveyed it to the prophets. And the, the, the prophets they conveyed the Torah to the men of the great assembly. Now, the Mishnah, after going through the transmission from Sinai till the first set of teachings, the Mishnah begins with the actual set, with the actual saying and teaching that we're going to derive today from the first Mishnah. The men of the great assembly, they would say these three things. Havi Bedim. 
Number one, be deliberate in judgment. Number two, and develop many disciples. And number three, and make a protective fence for the Torah. Okay, so we have three ideas here that are said from the men of the Great Assembly. And we have this transmission, this chain of transmission, which we mentioned earlier, which is a, I guess, a introduction to the idea of the Mishnah, or the ideas of the Mishnah. So the first question is, is, what is this transmission over here? Why does the Mishnah feel necessary to relate the, the, the chain from Sinai all the way back, right, from the teaching of the men of the Great Assembly all the way back to Moshe, who received the Torah from God? What's the point of it? You don't see a, a Mishnah like this really anywhere else, I don't believe. So the commentaries explain a very novel interpretation. And it really touches on what we said before. Because I mentioned earlier that the top genre of books that are sold is this category of self-help. Everyone wants to be better. And everyone is an expert on how to be better, right? So the Mishnah is giving us an important idea here, an important lesson that really takes us back to a, a second point, which I'm going to get to, of Masora. But the idea is, is that, you know, we can think of things of, of character development and character refinement and being a better pe person, getting along with people, having a connection to God. We can think of these things and the teachings that we're going to learn and say to ourselves, okay, these are good techniques that these rabbis invented. They, they thought of them. It's their, it's their original thoughts. And the Mishnah is telling us, no, 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 don't think like that. Because when the Mishnah gives us the chain of transmission, they're telling us that these uh, ways and these, these techniques to become better and to have character development aren't something which was just like these rabbis tested out and, and thought would be the best thing. No, they're from Sinai. They're from the transmission that God gave. They are included in the transmission from God to Moshe Rabbeinu that they're also divine. That just like all the halachos, the laws of the Torah were given over to Moshe Rabbeinu and transmitted from generation to generation, from teacher to student and from father to son, so too the, the way that a person becomes a better person and how to develop our midos, that's the word for character development, our, our character traits, our midos, how to make, improve our midos. That is also from Sinai. And I had to have that connection, that it's all divine. It's not a, something which was uh, studied and, 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 and tested. It is from Hashem. It is from God himself who tells us how to be a better person. And we should know that when we're getting into a, a book, a Mishnah, a Mishnayis, that deals with guidance on how to be a better person. And that's why the Mishnah lists the chain of transmission. And it really brings out another important point here, which I wanted to talk about for a moment. If you ask a random person on the street, it could be, you know, totally secular person, doesn't, you know, not, not necessarily, doesn't have to be a Jewish person, it could be anybody, right? Nine out of 10 times, if you ask them, you know, should there be murder? Should there be stealing? And people will tell you, right? Maybe nowadays in 
this crazy world sometimes people will say, oh, there should be stealing and there should be, right? This gets my point. But most people will tell you overwhelmingly that stealing and killing and, and uh, you know, are incorrect, right? Adultery, rape, all these things are wrong. And if you ask a person why that is, why is it wrong? They'll tell you it's because it makes sense. You can't have a society that functions if everyone's killing each other, if everyone's stealing from each other, right? But they're not giving a, a reason to back themselves up as to why it's needed. W what's the source of it? So the it's just because it makes sense. But we have to know as Jews that the reason why murder and stealing is incorrect is because God said it's incorrect. Because as long as you tie these things which are wrong, such as murder and stealing and adultery to things that just, it's common sense. So then as long as it makes sense, are people not going to do it? But if it makes sense in people's mind, right? And I'm sure we could all think of examples of nowadays, you think of the last two years where certain actions were justified, right? People you know, people, if you ask people, is it okay to steal from rich people from, from corporations? If you, is it okay to steal from a, you know, a major corporation, a few dollars, right? Is there anything wrong with taking a candy bar at a Walmart, right? Morally, many people might not have a problem doing that because hey, well, it doesn't, you know, how is it going to hurt Walmart if you take a candy bar, right? But the answer is, is that that's just as wrong as stealing a million dollars from somebody else. Because if something's wrong, it's wrong. If God says, and that's why it's important to remember, and that's why there's this level of transmission here, because we have to remember and internalize that even the things that quote unquote make sense to us and to people, such as murder and, and, and stealing, are, are also divine, um, they're, they're from God, that that's the reason why it's wrong. And the Torah lists it clearly, right? We know um, Lo Sigs, it says in the Torah, do not steal, do not kill. Right, that's one of the Ten Commandments, and we just have to re realize these things and remember it. Because as long as um, a person has his morality based in something concrete, so then he can't be moved. His morals can't be moved. But if you know his morality is based on emotions of what people feel is right, feel is wrong. So then the the needle can move back and forth. And I think. Anybody, you know, who has has a few years under the belt can attest that certain things that were totally not acceptable for people, you know, 40, 50 years ago have become permitted now, totally permitted. It could bother, it could bother us, it could bother you. How come it's like that? It's because the answer to that is because it once a, a code of morals is not cemented in. So then it's relative to the whims of people. And we're emotional beings. We can be swayed very easily. And that's why it's important to recognize and to remember that ultimately, as people, as Jews, our morals are cemented, are, 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 are set. And that's the Torah. The Torah doesn't change. doesn't change for anybody. doesn't change for someone's feelings. It, it's, it is what it is. It, and it's, it, it was given from God. And, and when you have that realization, it cannot be changed because it's given from God and it's divine and something which is over our heads. So let's continue. So the Mishnah gave us three different 
sayings that the men of the Great Assembly used to say. Now, just to give a little background, the men of the Great Assembly were the also known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was, I guess, to make a little bit of a separation, was like at that time, during the times of the temple, was like the Supreme Court of the Jewish people. And on the Sanhedrin at different times, first there was 70 sages, and at a later point there was 120 sages. They would sit in a certain area um, of the Holy Temple and would judge the nation. Any, any type of rulings that had to be disputed would come to them. They were the final arbiters of halacha, and they would sit in, the, in, the, um, in a special chamber in the Beis HaMeglish, in the Holy Temple. Now, the, 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 man, the men of the Great Assembly, it's also worth noting, they also set up the prayers that before a certain time, um, earlier in Jewish history, people knew how to pray. Now, what does that mean they knew how to pray? It means that they, they knew how to pray. That means that somebody, a person, people were so in touch with themselves and so in touch with I guess, how to speak properly in, in, in Lashna Kodesh, which is the, the holy tongue, which was, it's not modern Hebrew, but it's, the, it's the, the Hebrew of the Torah, that they knew which words to say that would sort of press the right buttons and maximize their prayers. But again, due to the, I guess, the, the decreasing of the generations, the, the sages found it necessary to set up a uniform um, system of prayer for the entire Jewish people. And it is to our benefit because the sages, the men of the greatest of the the men of the great assembly, knew when they set up prayer, they knew which words would press the right buttons, can maximize our prayers in heaven, and that's why they set up the morning prayer in a certain way, and the mincha, which is the evening prayer, and the and the nighttime prayers. Now, it is important to note that although we have a set system of prayer, it also is praiseworthy and desirable for someone to also additionally to speak to God in his own words, to have a prayer in his own language, in his own heart, from his heart. It also has a special place, but it goes together with the set prayers that the sages set up for us. Now, the men of the great assembly, at this time when they're teaching this Mishnah, from at the time of this Mishnah, when it was give, written over, they foresaw the, the impending destruction of the temple. And the, the message they would say is that, you know, the they would, you know, they would say a lot of things. They wouldn't just say three things. They said, Haim Amru right? They would say three things. And the Mishnah tells us that is that the commentary explained the Rav, Rav Avadim Bartanura, he explains that they didn't just say three things, but rather these three things were three main ideas that they gave over in order to strengthen the Torah because they, they saw on the horizon the impending destruction. And according to some commentaries, this, this, these ideas were given over shortly after the destruction of the temple. And, and the ideas they give over are these three thoughts and these three, three ideas are integral to preserving the Torah and making sure it, it could stay with us throughout our long exile, which has continued until this day. So let's look at each one, one by one. So the first lesson that they taught us was Havi Mesunin Bedin, be deliberate in judgment. Now, if you look at it literally, the commentaries explain this is a reference 
to the judges that if a judge has a case or had a case already 10 times and it's the same case already, he shouldn't look at it that, oh, I had this case 10 times. It's an open and closed case. I don't have to look into it already. You know, this is the, the 10th time this week that someone has stole a candy bar from someone else. I know what the halacha is. It's the same. I know what the law says. I'm just going to rule. And the commentary says that the judge should look at every case on its own merits and be deliberate. Don't just say, I had this case already and I'm done. That's on a simple understanding. Rebruvain Feinstein explains that, that this Havi Masunin Bedin has a deeper and, and, and larger meaning. He says that when the Mishnah says to be deliberate in judgment, it's referring to standing up for the Torah. It's referring to standing strong for the Torah, about keeping halacha, about not being ashamed of what the Torah says, right? Be deliberate. Don't, don't just gloss through things and say, ah, we don't need this anymore. That when it comes for... To, you know, when a person, a person should be stand by Torah true Judaism. He shouldn't just give in if something is, you know, if, if something goes against the Torah. He brings down that there's two benefits that a person gains by being deliberate in judgment, by being authentic in his, in his Judaism and not wavering from the Torah. The first benefit he gives is that it causes a person to stay true to his roots. And to stay connected to the Torah. When a person is authentic, right, they, they, you can't fake your way through things, right? If you really want to be authentic to something, so then it just doesn't feel right when you want to just gloss over something and not really pretend to be behind it. So when a person is, is Masunibedin, he's deliberate, right? He's authentic about his Torah Judaism, about his, about his heritage. So then he has the benefit of staying connected and to his roots and to the Torah, no matter what's going on around him. And the sages saw that the Jewish people were going into exile. They needed this strengthening in order for them to, to, to stay strong to their heritage because people, you know, as we know, for the last 2,000 years, we've been all over the world. We've been through fire, ice, water, right? We've been killed. We've been, you name it, it's happened to the Jewish people and we're still around. So what's, how is that possible? No other nation is around to this day, right? The Romans. Have you ever met a Roman? Have you ever met a Greek? Have you ever met an ancient Persian? I have. I haven't. And I don't think you will as well. But Jewish people are around. We're the same Jewish people from thousands and thousands, thousands of years ago. So the, they saw that in order to keep the Jewish people strong, they had to keep them true to their roots and to their heritage, which is the authentic, the real Torah. Number two. That when a when a Jewish person stands up for what he believes in, which is the Torah, so then the nations of the world respect the Jewish people. And you know, there's a certain, you know, there's a certain sanctification of God's name, which happens when a person stands up for what he believes in, especially when a Jewish person stands up for the Torah, which is right, and we we act as we're supposed to. The, you know, the nations of the world look at us and say, Wow, that's God's people. That's how a person's supposed to look. And when we act in that refined way, an elevated way, it's a glorification of Hashem's name, of God's name. And I, I can say personally, I feel sometimes, you know, again, I'm not that I, obviously I, I, I myself, we are, we're all on a path, we're all on a journey and we're all working to become better people. And I'm far from being perfect. 
But I, I feel myself when I walk around as a Orthodox Jew in the United States and um, different places where I've been, I haven't been everywhere. But when I walk around, I feel like there's a certain level of respect that people give to me, you know, and it's sort of unspoken because I live, you know, I hopefully am living up to a certain principles and certain living up to certain standards. And I feel like people, thank God in this country, I think people respect that. And I think this is this idea in the Mishnah that when we stay true, true, true to our heritage, people respect that. People respect authenticity when you're real, not when you're fake. And when, when people, you know, try to say that they have to change the Torah and change Judaism, I think there's a certain uh, falsity and a certain, you know, falseness, which people see right through. People who are looking for the truth see right through. And that's just the benefit of being, staying strong to our heritage and being deliberate and authentic. The second teaching of the Mishnah is a person, Hamidu Tamidim Harbe. And according to the commentaries, that means a person should have many students. That the people, you know, obviously on, on a simple understanding, it means that a the teachers, when they're going into exile, should have many students. They should have people to teach to, so they should be able to keep the tradition alive. That right, there's no next generation if you don't teach the next generation, right? The future is the children, as people always say, that the children are the future. And in Judaism, the, that is also essential. That's why Passover, Pesach is the whole focus is on the children because that's the future. If we don't have a future, we don't have the children. We don't. We're not able to give over that heritage. So then there's there's no future. There's no continuation. And our job is to make sure there's there's continuity, continuity, um, till till the till you know till the end of time. And but on a deeper level, it also means that when a person says "hamidu tamidim harbe," that the commentaries explain that it means that a person it doesn't you don't have to be a a a scholar like the biggest scholar in order to be a student. That, you know, many people think that like it's all or nothing and either I do it all or do nothing. And that's actually one of the misconceptions about Judaism. Obviously, we we all aspire to try to be the best we can be to do all 613 mitzvahs. We have to have the aspiration, but it doesn't mean that if we're not able to do it all, we shouldn't do anything. And the mission is telling us to stand up many students, to have many disciples is that means it's telling us have many students. Don't just look for. You don't have to be the best student to study Torah. You don't have to be a person who is, you know, inside out, a Torah scholar. You could be someone who is maybe not even the best student, but you want to study. You want to do good. As long as you're not coming to 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 um, contradict, you're coming to genuinely learn. So you should be welcomed in and you have a part in the Torah as well. Right. Not just for the, the people who go to the Ivy League yeshivas, right, the Ivy League colleges to study Torah. It's for everybody, for anyone who wants to genuinely learn and to genuinely have a connection to God. And we're going to see later in the Mishnah that it's not because it's not about how much you learn and, and, um, and how much you remember. It's about how much you try and how much you take it and put it into action. And a person is only judged by his effort and not by his results, which we will get to further later on in the coming Mishnahs, Mishnayos as well. And the last thought uh, of, of the Anshe Knesset Zagdol, the third teaching that they, that they saw and they, that they taught to the nation as they saw the people going into exile, as they first, you know, saw this on the horizon, was Asu Sayag Torah, make offense for the Torah. 
you know, we all know that, you know, if we have a high cholesterol or we have, um, we have to be careful with certain foods, it's much harder, right? Especially let's say if we like donuts, which scenario is a harder situation to hold yourself back from? Is, is it easier to not eat a donut if, you know, you don't have the donut in front of us and you keep the donut in the other room? Or is it still the same, you know, is, there, is it the same level of challenge if the donut's right in front of you, right? Obviously, if the, the food you can't eat is right in front of your face, it's much harder and, and you're hungry, it's much harder to hold back and not eat it. As opposed to a situation if you never would have gone in that room to begin with, with the donuts, right? You never would have gone in there. You would probably be able to not eat the donuts. You didn't see it. You didn't smell it. But once you entered into that room with all the donuts everywhere, you couldn't hold yourself back because it was just too hard. And, and the sages also, they knew that in order to keep the preservation of the Torah, especially during exile, when people are weaker and situations are harder, they knew that it was important for the rabbis to enact certain safeguards to protect the Torah and to protect the people from transgressing the Torah. And that is what, that's what it means, asusayag the Torah, to make a fence for the Torah. That there's many things that we do in Judaism. And obviously, the, you know, we're not talking about like regular people who set them up, that the, the sages who they understood human nature and they, they understood the guidelines of the Torah and how the rules and how to set things up. They, they, they have set up a system where we're protected from transgressing more severe transgressions um, because they want to protect us. They want to protect the Torah. An example of that is, you know, before Pesach, before Passover, the time that we stop eating chametz, that we stop eating bread, is a few hours earlier than actually what the, the Torah's time, the Torah's cutoff is, because they had, they were nervous, certain precautions, and they, they had, obviously, is based on halacha and based on Jewish law, and therefore they, the sages, the Torah gives the power to the sages to, to make fences to protect us from transgressing more severe um, transgressions. And this is just a, a, a very important general rule in life because many times in, in our battle, right, we have this battle of good and bad. We have a physical body and we have a spiritual soul. And many times there's this fight back and forth between the physical and the spiritual. The spiritual wants to do good. The physical wants pursuit of pleasure. And we have this struggle back and forth. Sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. But a, a good rule of thumb that can help us with our struggles and our challenges is sort of like I said before with, with a donut. That if we know we have a certain challenge, so if we can figure out a scenario where we don't put ourselves in a situation to begin with, we already won more than half the battle. And this is this idea of making a fence for the Torah because we learn from the sages that for things that are important and things that we want to strive for, we need to make a fence for ourselves sometimes because we are human. We, ha or we have emotions, we have impulses. So it's very helpful to, to make a, a sort of protective measure, a protective fence around us so we could help us grow and become better people. So that's going to finish for today's Mishnah. I hope you all enjoyed. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me at Rabbi Shlomo Khan with a K at gmail.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and 
give a five-star review once you're there. Okay, everyone, have a great day.